So it was basically, I get myself out or this is where I die. I've never been a big fan of those books or movies about people who have had near-death experiences. Or I guess death experiences, to be more specific. So I'm thinking of those stories from people or the parents of people who had some accident or trauma and were medically pronounced dead for a period of time. And then they, air quote, come back and talk about the experience that they had during that time. And I don't mean to suggest that these people are lying or that their experiences aren't valid. I think maybe I'm being a little bit cynical, but it just seems that it could be so easily manipulative. Everyone, to some degree, is afraid of or apprehensive of death. It's something we don't think about a lot, at least not here in the West. But I think most people are anxious about it. And sometimes I think these stories offer sort of a cheap comfort. I think one of the things that makes us uneasy about death is that we don't know what it's like. And this kind of offers us an explanation. But I just don't know that we can rely on that. I think we need to learn to be more comfortable with the unknown. Now, something I haven't had a lot of experience reading or hearing about is someone who maybe wasn't medically dead, but who saw their death in front of their face, who suffered an accident or a trauma that could have been the end for them. And that's what this episode of the I Was There When podcast is all about. On August 1st, 2007, the Interstate 35 bridge over the Mississippi River in Minneapolis, Minnesota, collapsed during rush hour. It sent dozens of cars into the river or crashing down onto slabs of concrete below, and it ultimately killed 13 people. I remember seeing this on the news, and one of the most harrowing things about it was that it was so drawn out for days. Rescue crews didn't recover the last victims until almost the end of August. My guest for episode 9 of the I Was There Win podcast was maybe seconds away from being one of those bodies. But thankfully, she's here today to tell us her story. My name is Lindsay Walls, and I was there when the bridge collapsed in Minneapolis. Now, before I get into the meat of my interview with Lindsay, I do just want to issue a quick warning. This episode is pretty heady. It was sort of a difficult conversation for me. It was difficult for me to hear Lindsay's story and even to listen back to it through the editing process. She was incredibly sweet and really introspective and really wise And her story has really shifted my perspective on a lot of things, which I think is incredibly valuable. And I'm I'm so glad to be able to share it with you. But that being said, um, it's a little traumatic. It's hard to hear about someone facing their death. She also goes into a lot of really fascinating detail about the PTSD she suffered after the event. And so I just want to warn you that if that's something you've suffered from, you may want to skip that part of the conversation because I could see how it could be triggering. So that starts somewhere right around the 30-minute mark. Um, so I would go ahead and stop it there if that would be best for you. All right, let's get to it. So I grew up in a rural town in Minnesota, about 90 miles west of the Twin Cities area. Okay. I studied youth development and 
became a youth worker in schools, in um, group home facilities, and currently am the founder of a nonprofit art studio that primarily serves young people and engages them as leaders in our community. So cool. Tell me about where you were sort of in your life in 2007, yeah. right? Yeah. But it was, and it was August, right? It was August 1st. So I was a, I was a couple years out of grad, uh, undergraduate program, and okay. I had been working at a group home with youth who ha- had to be out of their home for one reason or another. Some of mm-hmm. them were in the foster care system and were between foster homes. Some of them had chemical dependency concerns and mm-hmm. were coming to us as kind of a step down back into regular life. So working with youth with a variety of needs often had experienced significant traumas in their lives. It was a challenging but really valuable experience. It was mm-hmm. one I was still probably one of my favorite jobs even mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it was one of the <laughs> hardest. I, what made you choose that career path? Yeah, um, so I I grew up, my mom was a teacher, um, and so I think there's always been a part of me that's been um, an educator at heart, but I was really turned out off by the school system and kind of the limitations of working with young people in that space, and I really understood from a really early age how youth are entire people with whole lives and all kinds of needs outside of the school day that matter just as much, if not more sometimes, than that school day experience and their identity as a student. Yeah. Okay, so that's what you were doing then in 2007. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And so on the day this happened, where were you headed? I was actually headed home from that job. So my job was to um, work with the older youth, the 16, 17, 18-year-olds on all of the things you need to know to be a successful adult in this world. Mm. So we did uh, how to find an apartment and what to look for and um, get a job to, like, budgeting. And that happened to be sure. the um, skill we were learning that day, and it was not a fun one. So I, I left that day feeling actually really excited because we were putting together a mock budget. And, you know, even having adults do something like that can be, like, an unpleasant experience. <laughs> sure. And then you add layers of trauma and anger and mm. and all kinds of stuff on top of um, that with a young person. And I, I was very thrilled, to say the least, that day because they were all really into it. They all kind of were excited to move forward with this project we were started. And so I left, left the office um, kind of flying high and was driving down the highway. I worked in Shoreview, which is a northern suburb of the Twin Cities, and Mm -hmm. lived in Minneapolis. So I was heading south. It was about a 20-mile drive. Is it strange that you remember exactly what you were doing that day? Do you typically have a good memory like that? I do tend to have a good memory, but I think that that was a particularly – I think I had some – I had to process some grief just about not being able to come back the next day. Oh, sure. Um, you know, like my, that whole, my whole like outlook for the next four weeks of my job got kind of snuffed out in an instant. So, right. yeah, so I think it was a particularly meaningful thing that mattered in sure. the moment. Um, and it was just such a, like that work wasn't always something you left for home feeling good about. It sure. would be really stressful and, some days you left just 
not being able to stop thinking about an interaction or the pain that somebody was experiencing or whatever the case was. And it was mm-hmm. such a like joyful mm-hmm. experience that I had with them. That it's kind of an outlier almost. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, it was like a really um, significant day before it was cool. a significant day. You know, it's like you right. both, right? You get, right. Um, the fans, good and sure. the bad, they show up together. Um, yeah. It's amazing how that happens. Sure. So yeah, okay. so I was kind of driving home on my typical route. There was construction on the bridge that summer and mm-hmm. I kind of navigated the construction depending on the time of day, like which direction is the traffic moving, what's going to be the easiest way to get home. There were a couple routes that I could have taken um, because I was kind of thinking about how good that exercise had gone and, and everything that had been mm-hmm. happening at work. I was kind of in the clouds and didn't make, make my first exit. So that had been, I was kind of planning to detour around the bridge that day, but I, you know, didn't think too much of it because I knew that the time of day, I didn't really expect too many people to be driving into downtown. And so it was around like six o'clock? Yep. So I would have, well, so the bridge collapsed at six. I probably left work a little after 5.30. So walk me through that experience. So I got to... I don't know, about a mile north of the bridge and traffic came to kind of a complete stop and surprised me. I wasn't really sure what was going on, thought maybe something, an accident or whatever. Sure. Um, And just crept along for that mile. I got to a point where I was getting kind of antsy. I called my now husband, he was my boyfriend at the time, and we'd planned to go out for dinner that night. And so I gave him a call and it's answering machine picked up so I didn't leave a message or anything I just kind of hung up and kept going but there was there was one exit that I could have taken before the bridge that I would have just well weaved my way through downtown and I thought about taking that but it was such stop and go traffic and just getting over into a different lane at that kind of time Mm. just such an annoying thing that I was just like whatever I'll I'll keep going so I inched my way another I would say it was another hundred yards or so and was at the basically the middle of the bridge when I heard a metal snap um a beam I I thought at the time that you know there was some kind of accident somebody you know was lifting a big piece of metal and it fell <laughs> no whatever sure. that, you know it just sure. felt like somebody had done something oops um yep. and within a second of having that thought, my car started to nosedive into the Mississippi. So I didn't know what to expect. I gripped my steering wheel the whole way down. I knew I was on concrete, right, when I was mm-hmm. on the bridge, and so I kind of imagined I would land on concrete, too. I mm-hmm. You know, some part of me knew that the river was beneath me, but I didn't play out a scenario where I would land in the river. I just kind of assumed that when I landed, I would, like, my car would smash onto the concrete and my body would be a puddle of, like, goo. So that's you kind thought of, at that moment, I mean, you had enough time to sort of think that this was it for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the fall... You know, it's one of those, they talk about that kind of, like, 
slow motion experience mm. and you know mm. like the number of things that I had go through my head as I was falling you know? yeah. like it seems impossible for it to have only taken five ten seconds whatever it was from start yeah. to finish what sort of but, things going through your head I mean mostly it was just like when is it going to fall what's my body going to look I mean it was very more yeah. stuff when I landed so my car, you know, was going in a nosedive. At some point, my airbags deployed, like, okay. as I was hitting the water. And because my car was at, like, basically a, I don't even know what an angle, like, just basically a straight nosedive, okay. um, the water that I landed in, so I didn't stop moving until the car hit the bottom of the river, the Mississippi. Okay. And as it was going into the river, basically the car flooded with water because it just came straight up through the engine and through the filtration mm-hmm. filtration system and the, into the cabin of my car. So by the time the car stopped moving, I was now in a new predicament, <laughs> to right. say the least. And the only clear thought I had once everything stopped moving and I realized that I was drowning was to unbuckle my seatbelt and hope that something had broken and glass had, you know, given way something. Um, I didn't have any windows open or anything like that that day. So I unbuckled the seatbelt and I just started to push on like every surface. I didn't know, you know, what was glass, what was not. I couldn't see anything. It was all like dark and murky. I pushed and pushed on everything I could feel. I ended up at some point, I could kind of feel my body floating over the driver's seat and getting into the back seats of the car. And at that point, became pretty disoriented and and had no sense of up, down, door, window, roof. And that's when I also started to like instinctually gasp for air. Meanwhile, as I'm thinking about all the things going through my head, I was you know, I knew that there would be nobody getting to me. There's not, the river isn't really accessible at that place in mm-hmm. the city. So I knew it would be really hard for somebody to get to get to the river, let alone know that I was even there. So mm-hmm. it was basically, I get myself out or this is where I die. And so I pushed on every surface. And then when I started to gasp for air, it just became pretty clear to me that that was, it's like that I'd push as much as I could, that I'd fought as mu- much as I could, that there really wasn't anything left to do except, like, say my goodbyes, you know, across my mind. Like, you know, if I say goodbye to my family, um, maybe they'll know. Maybe they'll know yeah. that I was thinking of them. So hmm. I did that, and I just kind of waited at that point. I, I stopped pushing. I stopped fighting. and kept gasping um, and was basically just kind of going through the checklist of what pop culture, I guess, says <laughs> happens when you die. You know, like mm. the scenes from Ghost went, ran through my mind. But, <laughs> you know, it's like all those yeah. things that like, what does you it start mean thinking about it. Like, how right. do you, what is it even, what happens? So I was just right. waiting. Was there a sense of sadness at all or was it more I mean it sounds like almost curiosity a little bit yeah sadness is an it's an interesting thing I don't think that I had time for sadness like I think it went from like desperation and like fear 
mm-hmm. to just kind of like acceptance. Um, right. and I, and like that acceptance came with like this very peaceful experience of mm-hmm. like just not having any regrets, you know, like you do mm-hmm. that kind of scan of your life. And I didn't sure. have a long one at that point. I was only 24 years old when it happened and yeah. felt very accepting of like, you know, this is the life right. that I had. There were things that I had hoped to have in life, but this is it and that's okay. And, and so I, um, yeah, just going through that, like what's the next step here. And mm-hmm. I had like a, a flash of light kind of moment and, you know, my eyes had been, were closed at that point. And so I was like, okay, well, that's something people talk about. And right. Then, and then the next thing I felt was a floating. Like I could tell, you know, I had been pushing on everything and I kind of knew the limit to where my body could sure. move. Okay. And I just felt like I had moved beyond those limits. And so I was pretty sure, well, that's, dying right like okay the yeah ghost where the right leaves the body or whatever right and it didn't feel dead though you know I was right. not that you know what it feels like to be dead so mm-hmm. I um hoped that I was actually alive and started kicking and mm-hmm. reached the surface so you're not going to believe this but Lindsay and I's phone conversation cut off right here I was literally like sweating listening to her story. And you can imagine, I was like, Lindsay, 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 what happened next? So we got reconnected a couple minutes later. I'm like sitting here on the edge of my seat. So the last thing I heard you say was that you you started kicking. Yep. So I started kicking and Mm -hmm. um, I reached the surface of the water, gasped for air. I had surfaced facing away from the bridge um, towards the lock and dam so there was kind of a waterfall mm-hmm. and I had to reorient myself and try to figure sure. out what was going on above the water so um, you never lost consciousness at all mm-mm. okay and no. do you know how you got out magic <laughs> right mermaids yeah right I have a mermaid on my arm that's do you a tattoo <laughs> yeah that's so cool it connected to this yeah okay that's the explanation I like, you know, mermaid sure. people can't argue with, right? <laughs> right. I mean, hey, you just never this know. Is magical and mysterious as anything else. So. Right. Something yeah. happens, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, wow. yeah. So it's you reached the, the surface. I reached the surface and had to take in everything that was going on above the water. And, you know, I scanned the, the bridge and I saw a guy standing on the edge of the what I've come to call like the island of bridge in the water. So when the bridge collapsed, there were huge slabs of concrete that fell horizontally into the river and were still above the surface of the water. So that's what she's referring to here. I'll have some photos of this up at I was there when podcast.com. And he saw me like after I like made some noises and was kind of flailing around, he saw mm-hmm. me and he waved me over to the bridge and my memory is a little fuzzy about how far I swam but I would say it was at least 10 to 20 feet from where I was to the actual bridge and I got there and he kind of motioned me over a little bit further because the bridge had split in a way that there was a little bit on one side there was like basically a big drop off and the other Mm -hmm. side 
there was a slope so I could kind of climb okay. out and he there was a broom a push broom that had fallen mm-hmm. with the bridge and he was wearing construction like he had jeans and a I think a vest a construction vest on okay um so I could tell he was a construction worker and he just like grabbed the broom and basically fished me out um mm. and told me to sit by the median um and wait for help and okay I listened because I'm I'm a rule follower. He told me what to do, so I did it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, in a situation um, like that, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what else? Uh, do you do? I don't know what else to do. Like right. that sounds like it's a good not thing really to do. a rule yeah. for this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, told me to go sit down the median, and I did. And as I sat down and started to just like take in what was going on around me, like it mm-hmm. became pretty clear that my back had been injured pretty significantly. Okay. Um, I started to have like intense pain and I had no idea what it felt like to have a broken back, but it seemed pretty clear it you was probably guess. broken. Yeah. yeah. And so then okay. I was really concerned that I was going to be paralyzed. So I sat mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and just like wiggled my toes and kept waiting. Mm-hmm. Not too long after Jeff, the construction worker, left um, to go assist other people someone in scrubs named amy came by and when she she was wearing scrubs and i assumed that she was somebody who would come to help um mm-hmm. but it turned out she was a survivor too so she had been wow. either on her way to or from work okay. and so she went into first responder mode and she was literally the first responder on the scene i still remember this is such a like important moment too like one of the things that I remembered seeing as before I sat down was like people were just standing outside of their cars like on their phones and yeah it was very confusing to me because their cars looked like they had just kind of been glued to the cement and ridden it down mm. um that was not the case like I found out later you know many of those cars had been 50 feet in front or behind where they landed but they you know these people were seemingly okay standing there Mm -hmm. on their phones and it was such a surreal thing um and later when she came over she hollered across the median to the northbound lanes and said does anyone have a towel or a bottle of water and literally within like seconds it seemed like a towel and bottles of water were like flying across the median kidding yeah and so and that was like when she was there was the first time i like became aware of bleed being like having open wounds, nothing like horrendous or anything like that, but I was bleeding and she like cared for those wounds and kind of asked me some so questions. So she was asking for those things for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And um she asked about my back, kind of um said, Okay, I'm gonna go and check out on these other people. So she went off. Mm-hmm. At some point she came back and at that point like enough people had their phones that I was like, oh, like, that's right. There's cell phones. <laughs> right. And my my phone was at the bottom of the river, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I asked her if she had a phone that I could use. And because the only thing I could think of was to call Dave, my boyfriend, and he, he and I actually worked at the group home together and he'd okay. worked in overnight the night before. So when I called earlier and he hadn't picked up, I assumed he was still sleeping or whatever. But I finally had a chance and I called him and again, he didn't pick up, but I left a message and basically just said, you know, a bridge has collapsed. I don't know 
what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure I'm very injured and will end up at a hospital. Mm-hmm. And since I didn't get a hold of him, my next thought was to call my job because they knew both of us and they could help That's coordinate something. So I ended up mm-hmm. talking to a coworker and, and tried to explain what was going on. And that was, I think, one of the biggest things about the whole experience is people just did not understand really what somebody was saying you know like a bridge yeah. collapse like what does that even mean right like right. that doesn't even like there's no comprehensible yeah. yeah this concept is absolutely fascinating to me the fact that Lindsay was talking to a coworker who simply could not compute what she was saying and bear with me it actually kind of reminded me of speaking spanish So I studied Spanish in school. It was my minor at Ohio University. And the first job I got right out of college was in an HR department at a huge resort in Phoenix, Arizona. So more than half of our employee population spoke exclusively Spanish. So I was speaking it almost all day, every day. And I learned a ton. It was very immersive and it was a great experience. But the second job I got after that I was speaking Spanish almost the same amount, but almost exclusively over the phone. And it was so much harder. And I think this idea of being able to expect something when you're speaking with someone is the reason why. There's so many cues involved in person-to-person encounters. So somebody at the resort is bringing me a piece of paper that they're about to ask me a question. Or they have facial cues or body language and all of those nonverbal things that communicate are missing when you're speaking over the phone. So I could answer the phone and have no idea what this person was about to ask me. And it would always take me a minute to get my brain into Spanish mode and to understand what they were saying. And so I did a little bit of digging about this as well and I found some really fascinating stuff. So there was actually a study published earlier this year in a journal called Scientific Reports in which this group of scientists were studying what they call language prediction. So basically what we're talking about here, if I say to you, the king was wearing a, your brain is already starting to think about what I'm about to say, a robe, a crown, that sort of thing. That's called language prediction. It is provable. That really happens in our brains. Now this study that I found is a little more in the weeds than that. They were studying whether language prediction is actually language production. So it's a little bit harder to decipher what exactly they were studying, in my opinion. But I am going to link to that study on the show notes just because it's really interesting. But I found another study too um, from the University College London in 2012. And they were looking more specifically at what kind of news we expect to hear when we start a conversation with somebody. And they found that we actually tend to expect good news more than bad news. We have an optimism bias. So if Lindsay had called her coworker and said, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. Or, hey, I just got engaged to Dave. He would be more apt to accept that news than he was to understand her calling and saying, this terrible thing just happened. I'm going to link to that study on the show notes as well. But it's just so fascinating to me. So when I was first telling my coworker, like, you know, can you find, you know, can you get a hold of Dave? And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll get a hold of Dave and I'll send him to the bridge. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, I remember, no. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, there, like, that was when I said there is no bridge. And I think, like, I remember him just going like, oh, like, it just mm. couldn't even be comprehended before. Right. 
And so I got done talking to him and then just sat there and waited for help. And I, you know, I took in lots of other sights and sounds. I saw the tasty truck that was on fire way up above. I was trying to imagine all the different people and their experiences. Like, what was it like for the person who had just gotten across it and saw, like, nothing in their rear view mirror, like, just thinking about all these different people and hearing the sirens kind of all over the city. It felt like they were everywhere. It was kind of a surreal surreal place to be down in the river because there was something very, like, calm and, like, quiet about the river. And everyone on the bridge itself was just kind of in a stupor. And so there was just, like, this bubble of, I don't know, shock, yes. And then above the bubble, there's just chaos. There's helicopters. There was sirens. There's just, and you could just feel the city just kind of coming to a complete stop. And so, so you saw all the wreckage from the bridge and you saw the truck on fire. Did you Mm -hmm. see anybody else get rescued from the water? No. By the time the actual rescue workers got there, there wouldn't have been anyone to rescue. It was a recovery effort at that point. Sure. Okay. When did you find out that people had died? Um, Did you you assume that? I assumed that that people had died. I assumed that I was one of the only people that was alive when I surfaced. And there was one person that I saw standing there. I thought, okay, there's a couple of us. And then when I got onto the bridge deck, and there were people standing by their cars. That was one of the things that, like, totally messed with me. Like, what? Like, how is that even possible? So I was actually surprised, like, more surprised how few people died. Sure. You know, 13 was a, a lot, but I was expecting it to be. I mean, there were 120 of us on the bridge that day. Is that 120 cars or people? Total? 120 people total. Okay. There was a bus and there's, you know, a few bands and stuff like that. So the victims ranged in age from 60 to very young. There was a mother named Sadia Sahal, who was a Somali immigrant who died, and she died with her baby, and she was also pregnant. So I will um, put a link to the list of victims in the show notes, um, just because I think it's cool to remember them um, and to hear a little bit about who they were. And so how did you come to get off of the sort of island there? Some guys showed up in hazmat suits. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, because the, the yeah. river is very polluted. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. I understand not wanting to compound tragedy on tragedy, but dude, city of Minneapolis, showing up in a hazmat suit, not a great look. <laughs> wow. So they, they took boats. So it took a long time for people to get to us because the bridge had actually collapsed onto one of the main service roads that they would right. have used to get closer to us. So eventually they came upriver from further south in boats and they got us, you know, they strapped me into a, a backboard and hauled me across the median over to, you know, over to what would have been the northbound side and, and onto mm-hmm. a boat. And I got to the shore and then they set me down there and that was the second waiting period where I was I was waiting I looked at my hospital records at one point and it took about a hour and a half total 
from when the ridge collapsed to getting in admitted to the hospital. hospital. Wow. Yeah. So that is a really long time with that kind of injury. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you was, must have been in incredible pain at that point. I was, yes. And so I had to wait for a long time and at that point I there were people gathering at the bridge on the bridge just next to the thirty five W bridge. There's another bridge that's just a city street called the Tenth Avenue Bridge. And people started gathering there and were like kind of gawking, you know, in a way that you would probably expect people to. So I was, I sat there and waited. There was a nurse at one point who came and checked on me, but for the most part, I was just kind of like strapped to a board and mm. could only look up at the sky and girl. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I had a skirt on and there was a point where there looked like there was maybe going to be a thunderstorm coming in and the wind picked up. And so I was, you know, <laughs> and I've got, person with a giant camera right above me and like, oh girl, girl. <laughs> isn't it funny the things you think about yeah like that <laughs> like that's not a time that I want I to almost photograph. just died but please don't look at my underwear <laughs> exactly no and that was one of the things that I'd ask the Seriously. nurse like she had to move on and I assumed like there are worse situations going on with some of the people around me so I the thing I'd ask totally her, like, can you just check check right. my skirt every once in a while right <laughs> so like yeah, and I'm not exposing yeah. myself to the world. <laughs> you know, little things wow. like that. So how long were you, and so you did break your back. I did what, break my back. What was the extent of your injuries? Was that the that was the major? The most significant physical injury was um, I had a compression fracture to my L1 vertebrae. So I was in the hospital for right. five days and then had to wear the brace for five months. But I definitely would say, like, my most significant injury beyond the back one was PTSD, so that's like sure. been the thing that I have um, had to do the most recovery around. Ten years. <laughs> what has that journey been like? So, I think the thing that's really interesting for me, and the thing that helped me the most, is that I had been working with youth who had PTSD written all over their paperwork, sure. and so I had this very superficial understanding of PTSD at the time, but knew without a shadow of a doubt that it was there and that I had to like do something about it because if I didn't do something about it, that it would, it could turn ugly really fast. Um, so, and, and please, if you're not comfortable answering this, that's completely fine. But how was it manifesting in your life at that point? Yeah. So I, I felt a range of things. I had a lot of hypervigilance. Um, sure. So even just like the first couple of months being in a car again, like I was very mm-hmm. hypervigilant to everything happening around me. Sure. Um, but I also, one of the things that happens when you get PTSD is you get, you get hypervigilant about your survival in very specific ways. So for me, I came up with ways I would survive um, Mm -hmm. any situation. So if it was driving over another bridge, like if I'm here on that bridge, I know that I need to have my windows open. If I'm here, I need to make sure that this is, you know, happening. Um, Mm -hmm. But it would also manifest basically with any man-made structure. So I would be at a church and be very aware that the roof is leaking and that probably Mm. means that it's going to fall down or the elevator shutters and you like Mm. you know so like I had kind of survival strategies that just kind Mm. of I became almost like a 
an engineer or something. Like I would sure. know things like when I'm in the elevator, I have to stand with my hands under the the railing so that mm-hmm. if it breaks, then I'm not going to fly up and hit my head on the um, ceiling. You know, it's okay. like if I'm driving under the tunnel, I have to make sure I'm by a semi because then at least there's a chance that they'll it'll hold up the Next. ceiling wow. so that there'll be an air pocket so that I can survive. So did you um, start doing like research on these things? Or no, it just was just like things you were thinking about naturally. Sure. Like, it's almost like this super sense that you develop. Mm, it's weird. Yeah. To some degree, it's really unhealthy, and you like don't realize how much you're doing mm. it until you say mm. it out loud. Um, yeah. But I've also come to like recognize how valuable that was to me because it kept me in the world. The alternative sure. okay. to doing that would have been to like isolate and like become mm. a recluse and never right. leave my house because the world is scary. Some of those, you know, over time they've diminished or I've, you know, I can just like, oh, Lindsay, look at you doing that again and just kind of give myself Mm. a, you know, be kind to myself when that happens. Um, But it also like PTSD showed up with, you know, just a lot of anger, a lot of grief and loss that I couldn't explain. I think one of the things that was really hard about the whole experience was that I experienced it with complete strangers. You know, in a lot mm-hmm. of circumstances with disasters, at least there's like, there's something that binds with you together that. before mm-hmm. it happened. And mm-hmm. all we had in common was that we happened to be on the same road at the same time. And there, you know, and there are 13 people who died who I felt deeply connected to and were complete strangers at the same time. Mm-hmm. And how do you grieve the loss of somebody who you've never met before and yet feel deeply sorrowful sorrowful about sure Um, and a lot of guilt I think my survivor's guilt was and probably remains one of my most significant hurdles you know like having almost died in like a very close to death way like how do you live with the fact that other people didn't and so it's been now 11 years so aside from the um your organization that I want to hear about in a minute, mm-hmm. how how does it still affect your life? So it's interesting, like every single time in the last, say, two or three years where I've had this thought, you know, I think I'm just better now. I think it's just mm. done. Yeah. Like the next day or the next week, something will happen and I'll be really? like, oh, there yeah. it is all over again. And And so what I've learned about, especially about the PTSD, is that like my body will always remember it it will remember Mm -hmm. the fall so if i see something on tv where somebody's falling from a big height like my body will feel the sensation of gravity like my stomach will drop my everything feels like i'm falling i can't watch you know like there's just ways that those body memories will reemerge, and i've just had to learn how to support myself through it. I will say it's it's like recovering from anything, I think, whether you're uh, recovering from alcoholism or recovering from, you know, yeah. trauma. It's like it's always there. Right. Um, and it's just about having the skills to um, work with it when it shows yeah. up. I'm a person, I think, that can, I don't know, for whatever reason, have always had this ability to see the good in anything that happens. So I've often kind of grappled with it's the 
best gift I never wanted. You know, it's this thing that has caused so much pain and hardship in life. And, you know, to a degree that I probably don't even like think about all the time because it's just like you just go through your days and try to take one step at a time. But but it's also given me so much, you know, like I know incredible people now that I never would have known. I Mm -hmm. have a new sense of my own capacity to recover from pain, whatever kind of pain, emotional pain, physical pain, the strength that that takes. So for all of that, I have to be grateful. I understand. I think I read somewhere that the organization you have now, you started with money from the settlements. Is that right? Yeah, a portion, like a small chunk of it. I see this. Um, That was something the day the bridge collapsed, there was a particularly angry guy screamed out, somebody's going to pay. And, you know, at that moment in time, I had already thought someday I want to create an organization. And when he said that, I was like, okay, well, maybe that's why, maybe Mm. that's why I'm still here. A major investigation was launched into what caused the bridge to collapse. And originally, some people even wondered if there had been a bomb or it was some form of terrorism. These engineering firms were commissioned to build models of the bridge and determine why it collapsed the way it did and what could have caused it. And in the end, the National Transportation Safety Board determined it was a design flaw. Basically, the designs for the bridge called for a certain size of steel plates that ended up being insufficient for the amount of weight that the bridge would have to carry. So as a result of that investigation, the victims received substantial payouts. So tell me about the organization. Yeah, so in 2013, so about five years after the collapse, I started an arts organization called Courageous Hearts. I didn't consider myself an artist and probably still struggle with the terminology (laughs) um, even today. But um, before the collapse, I wasn't really artistic, but it became a really important source of healing for me. Um, It became a way to process some of the things that I was feeling and thinking about without needing to put words to it. And so having worked with young people in so many different capacities before and knowing how few opportunities they have for creative expression and particularly creative expression that's completely their own and not just some Mm. project that their art teacher tells them to do (laughs) to learn a skill. I wanted to create a space where young people could access creative expression and all the tools that go along with it and started Courageous Hearts to do it. So We've been around for five years now, and we're still a very baby nonprofit that's just kind of month-to-monthing it, trying to make ends meet, but we have a lot of amazing young people who come into our space, some of whom are self-proclaimed artists and some of whom who are very much not. We kind of talk about being a safety net for creativity. I know I was one of those young people that kind of in middle and high school had to choose what direction to go because you couldn't take art and any of the other things that, you know. (laughs) Right, yeah. Um, And so because I, you know, didn't feel particularly talented in the area, I said, well, I'm not an artist, so I'll do this. So Hearts is kind of designed as a space for kids who, and adults, we started to offer our space to the whole community. And really with the intention that, like, everyone is creative, everyone deserves a space where they can explore and experiment with 
all the stuff that's available and use it to express themselves. So is it sort of like an art studio? I mean, are there programs or just come and go as they please? It's a mostly it's a drop-in open studio environment. So we have all the supplies and everything you can imagine, Mm -hmm. along with some supportive hosts who are there to help you problem solve and imagine what you want to do. Um, And then we also do workshops and classes and stuff like that that are taught by artists. That's one of the the pieces of us being a baby nonprofit is we want, if we're going to offer up artists as teachers and stuff, we want to pay them and we want (laughs) to. Sure. And so you have to have the capacity for all of that stuff. Right. Getting there. So do you feel like that this endeavor has brought you some healing as well? Oh, absolutely. I think when I started the organization, I started it because I wanted to, but I also started it because I felt like I had to, to somehow, like going back to that idea of survivor's guilt, like somehow I had to prove that I deserve to be here. And it's helped me work through a lot of that and a lot of the, the residuals of what does it mean to have gone through something and to find happiness again. Lindsay, the next time I see a story of something terrible happening, I'm just going to tell myself that there's a bunch of Lindsays <laughs> that are going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm Obviously, I'm just so sorry that this happened to you, yeah. but well, I'm encouraged to hear your story. Lindsay tells me that she's been able to do some exposure therapy around water, and she's been able to revisit the bridge site since this happened. And she said for her, it's actually become a meaningful place in as much as it's the closest thing she has to a grave site for the people that died that day. And she says she's gotten to know some of the victims' families as well. And that's been healing, not just because they have a shared traumatic experience, but because they've been able to tell her too that she shouldn't feel guilty about being alive or being happy. I'm going to put a link to Lindsay's organization, Courageous Hearts, on the I Was There When podcast page, which again is just IWasThereWhenPodcast.com. It's such a cool organization, and she's doing some awesome stuff. Um, So I hope you'll check that out. C.S. Lewis says, What you see and what you hear depend a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Man, I think that quote is so perfect for today's episode because I could have seen a person going through what Lindsay went through and coming out a totally different person or handling it a completely different and less graceful way. Anyway, thanks for listening and I will see you again soon.